0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the Bachman book, Rage chapters 1 through 20. Let's start the show! High school senior
1: Charlie Decker, facing expulsion for assaulting his chemistry teacher, sets the contents of his locker on fire, gets a pistol, and returns to his algebra class, where he kills the teacher and then a history teacher who comes to investigate. Holding the rest of the class hostage, Decker reveals information about his troubled childhood, And some of the other students begin to share their own secrets and feelings.
0: That's quite the setup, Sean.
1: Yes. So Jay, this story, Rage, was originally written, at least started being written by King in 1966 when he was a senior in high school, and then he finished it in 1971. And at that point, it was titled, Getting It On. Mm. Decker says that phrase multiple times throughout this section of the book. King wanted to publish it like under his name right away but his publisher Doubleday didn't want to oversaturate the market so this was the first case where they said "All right, well let's do it under a pseudonym and he submitted it as getting it on by Guy Pillsbury which is King's grandfather's name so that was going to be the original pseudonym he was going to use and there's a Twitter user who just started following us a couple weeks ago named Guy Pillsbury so I thought that was a Nice deep cut.
0: That is really deep cut.
1: (laughs) Yeah. When he submitted it as Guy Pillsbury, a number of people at the publishing house knew about King having a book called Getting It On. And so the secret was already out. Ah. They pulled it and said, okay. And then he resubmitted it as Richard Bachman and submitted it with the new title Rage. And Richard Bachman, I think, was because he had a Richard Stark book sitting on his desk, and Bachman Turner Overdrive was playing on the radio. And so he was looking around, and there you go, Richard Bachman. Sort of like the uh, the fish and the light bulb coming together to form the Homer Simpson logo in The mm-hmm. Simpsons. Number one lucky Joe. Exactly. So this is actually his fourth published book. It came after Carrie Salem's Lot and The Shining, and just before The Stand, this was 1977 when it was published. And then it was obviously republished in the Bachman books in 1985. And if you're like my father, you'll notice that this is not a book that is easy to come by nowadays. He was unable to find it when he was looking for it on different places. And that is because after a number of school shootings that had some tenuous ties to rage, there's at least one where the kid had a copy of the book in his locker, but some of the other ones may have referenced it or not. King let the book go out of print in 1998, so all the other Bachman books are now published as standalone novels, uh, but this one is not. And in the foreword to the Bachman book Blaze, King writes about Rage. This is now out of print and a good thing. And if you go to the stephenking.com website and look up Rage, it reads, No future printings will be made of this novel at Stephen's request due to the sensitive nature of the content. And so that'll be our warning to our listeners as well, that this involves a school shooting. So if you're willing to read all the other Stephen King novels about shootings and supernatural creatures and dogs killing people and women with psychic powers, but are unwilling to read this, then there you go. Yeah. That's your trigger warning. My trigger warning. Seems like there should be a trigger warning for every single Stephen King book for one thing or another. Nobody warned Jay that Roland was going to lose his fingers, and he's been traumatized by that for thirty some years.
0: Oh, why would you have to bring that up? <laughs> so, Sean, I find this book really interesting. I think it's a great example of what King is capable of, and is all the more impressive considering that he started writing this and and finished it just a few years later, but as a high school at, at high school age, yeah. And I think one of the main themes here is that, to maybe oversimplify it a little bit, that growing up is scary. When you're a kid, you deal with a lot of stuff that isn't clear yet, maybe will never be clear. Of all the outside forces that affect children's lives, and some of those making their their lives miserable, the idea of becoming an adult can often be one of those things Hmm. that just not being a kid anymore and being an adult, whatever that really means, is a scary thing. And King has v- revisited this theme with lots of his other books. It's probably the the best example, right? You literally die, you yeah. know, by <laughs> to the hands of a demonic clown because you're an adult, and growing up is is a hard thing to do in Derry, right? Yeah, I think that's a lot of what's going on in this story. We learn that Charlie has a strained relationship with both of his parents. He's coddled by his mother to a fault, and he gets really harsh treatment from his father. And we see a particularly traumatic experience when his father picks him up and slams him into the ground like a wrestler because he's so angry about broken windows. And and he's only four at the time. Yeah. It's, it's not like he's a teenager and no. maybe has a like hope of defending himself against that. No, he's just a sack of potatoes. Yeah. And so this does not excuse Charlie's
1: behavior, but all of this is his coming of age story in some effect, right? Mm-hmm. It's looking back at all the things that could potentially have caused him to do this. Not that there, again, that there's any good reason to do this. And I think that that's one of the reason, reasons King has pulled the book. But King does seem to tap into that psyche and give you at least an insight into why Charlie has done this, even if Charlie doesn't quite understand why he's done this and is not sure what the end game is. Even some of the kids in the classroom sort of ask him, like, what happens now? And he's like, I, I don't know. You know, yeah, like, <laughs> haven't thought that far. He, he's clueless as well. And we do get the sense that even though he doesn't have what seems to be a very good relationship with any other kids his age. Mm hmm. He at least can identify them with them more than he can with any sort of authority figures. He definitely has issues with the teachers, the counselor, the principal, the firemen, the policemen, everyone around him he just seems to want to fight with.
0: Yeah. You gave the, the trigger warning earlier, and uh, I think it's, it's a good thing that you did that. But in some ways, the the most horrible thing that happens in the beginning of the story that that sets it in motion. the The murder of the two teachers mm-hmm. is almost inconsequential. That's not what King wants to explore with the story. Just like with the Stand, he really wasn't interested in exploring the disease that kills the world. He's interested in what happens to the people who are still around after that happens. Yeah, and that's why most of that book takes place after the plague. So here, it's Two teacher murders, which I'll just say this one more time, is horrific. Should never happen. No one should do that. But that's not the point. The point is King wanted to set up a situation where it was kids in a room with an opportunity where, like, I don't know if I should if I would say safe space, but it was a space where they could really talk about the things on their minds, the things that were bothering them, the things that that they felt were kind of crushing. Their, their souls as kids, as students, as the people who are not the authority figures in their, in their circles, and all of the, the psychic trauma that, that comes with that. Yep. They're not unique. Every kid goes through some form of this to some degree, but this was an opportunity to, to just bottle up all these kids in a, in a place where nobody could touch them for a little while so they could hash it out together. And, I, and that's what makes the story so fascinating for me.
1: Yeah. It, there's a point when after he kills the teacher and none of the kids scream or like run for the door, mm-hmm. and he's like, that would have changed everything. Yeah. But because of the reaction, he's able to, to continue to have this area where they're just going to talk and realize even though he's the one with the gun, he's the one who's murdered the kids, they're on sort of a level playing field unlike all the people in their lives who are the authority figures pushing down on them. Yep. And one of the reasons I thought that maybe they didn't act like that is there was this line where King, as Charlie writes, American kids labor under a huge life of violence, both real and make-believe. And this is an instance when all of these children have probably seen on television or in movies, somebody get shot before. And so that line between what they've seen on TV and movies and what actually happened in front of them hasn't shocked them enough to run around and freak out because it's almost like there is a barrier between them. And so even though there's a teacher laying dead right at the front of the room, they're able to continue these discussions about life
0: as children, which is odd. And there might be some like, unconscious tribalism too, if Charlie had instead killed one of the students in the class. I suspect that he, that's when they would have you know screamed and run out of the room., yep. it was the fact that Charlie killed the teacher, and they were not okay with it, but they were like not put off by it, like right. It's really hard to find the right words for this without seeming yeah. overly callous or, or, or anything, but they didn't react in a way that I, I think you would assume people would react, and that even surprised Charlie. Yep, He notes moments, especially early on in this, where he did not have the upper hand, but nobody made a move to take advantage of that. And then that moment passed, and now he he had control again. And Now, he's like, well, if they do try something now, it'll be harder for them yep. to overwhelm me and, and escape, et cetera, et cetera. And so King seems to be playing with this
1: idea that there is a facade around everyone, that everyone has one face that they put forward to people. Mm-hmm. And then they have their own private self. So Charlie obviously has done this. But then, you know, he talks about Ted Jones, who's got the perfect all-American name, but you find out his mom is an alcoholic. And then there's uh, the two girls, and the one of the girls is ashamed of her mother, who might be a barfly and might sleep around. And so there's all of these things that they're hiding from each other and everyone else. Although none of it is particularly secretive, necessarily. There's still rumors and things going around, but again, it's how you present yourself and what you're able to do and say, and that's what Charlie's game seems to be. When people get on the PA system to talk to him, people in authority, is to uncover that and catch folks in a lie or dig deeper into what they say they are, like the school psychologist and the
0: principal. Mm-hmm. Charlie definitely takes some some pleasure out of turning the table of, of, of turning the tables of control against people like. The school counselor. But there's also something to the facade thing like, yeah, a lot of things are sort of known or correctly assumed about the of the students of each other. But there's also a deeper layer to all of them that they don't know. The character that everybody calls Pigpen, hmm. because he's poor. And so he's, he wears old clothes and stuff. He finally opens up and tells the class about his life, about his mother, about his family secrets. For one thing, he immediately becomes more sympathetic. And for another thing, you realize that he's having a hard time. And there are specific reasons why he's having a hard time. And all of this feeds into the thing that you see. The person he is in the school, what you can see, how he acts, what he says, what he doesn't say. It is all a result of the stuff that happens outside of school, that happens in his mind, that he doesn't share. Here, he's sharing it, so we all get to know why Pigpen is the way he is, and we feel for him. We mm-hmm. wish that he had a better better shot at life, and I'm happy he's getting a chance to, to voice this. I kind of get the feeling that none of these kids will be the same after this, and not because they will be traumatized and have to deal with PTSD and and that kind of thing. I think it's like they're all going to get or some of them at least are going to have some kind of catharsis from this. Right. It's an incredibly terrible way to do like psychological uh you know treatment. Yeah. But I I think in some ways everybody except Charlie and you know is probably going to come out of this it it feels like they'll actually benefit from this. Right. Which is also fascinating. Yeah,
1: I mean it's the late 60s, so it's not like they were going to uh a therapist or a psychologist to seek help, right? Like what opportunities did a a high schooler in Maine have, especially if you're a, a male, that there weren't any, hey, why don't we have you talk to somebody, boy? Like I'm sure that that was not happening. Yeah. This is that opportunity. So I'd like to transfer to the writing itself. I am what, 30 years out of high school now, but reading this story like brought me back to high school in such an immediate way. Oh. And part of that is due to the fact that King was in high school when he wrote this, but other parts of it are just because things about high school are timeless, whether you went to school in the 50s, the 70s, the 90s, or the 2000s, right? There's those certain details that King was able to pick up on and just that observational knack that King has. Like when he mentions the way the toilets flush in the high school, And I'm like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. I remember that the toilets would flush with that big loud noise that you would think that everyone in the world could hear it. And just the way the halls were, when King describes the classroom, I pictured my fifth grade classroom. Again, not high school, but it was very much a, a building that reminded me of the building that King's writing about here with. The windows off on one side and the teacher's desk at the front, and the door over to the one side, and the little window in the door where you could see people. And I was just like, man, King has just nailed this. And it just brought back all those memories. And it's not that he just described all these
0: things, but he just, the way he wrote it was just so perfect. When you and I were playing in this episode, we both said we had a specific classroom in a specific school at some point in our school history that we pictured down to the last detail every time this classroom was described. Yep. It wasn't that I was transforming my memory of that room into King's description. It was I was King's description was so detailed that it conjured up a real place for me, just yep. like you described. And that just goes to King's talent for, for building a space in our imagination with his words. And that makes it feel all the more real. I felt like I could picture which seat I was in, yep. in that classroom. Kind of like I was I'd be between pick pen and so and so, and that's where I'd be, and everything else around me is from that perspective of that seat in the room that doesn't happen in every story or every book or with every author no, and part of that is that
1: school is a universal thing for most Americans, you know, like we all have gone to some amount of school, and it's not even just the physical space, but even the characteristics of some of the children, young adults whatever they there were kids like Pink Pen in my school. There were kids like Ted Jones in high, in my high school. There were kids, maybe not like Charlie Decker, but he mentions one of his buddies, Mick Kennedy. And I am like, oh, I know I know a kid who would hang out with a kid like Decker. And I, I could picture who that McKennedy was. And part of that is just maybe these are tropes, but I don't think that that's it exactly. I just think that there are certain universal things about high school that come together. and And King's just sort of done a really good job of putting this here and it's just great observational stuff that 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 holds on the other thing is just the themes of this it's not too far off from the long walk which we just covered mm-hmm. the idea of death and not fitting in and that one was very male focused this one there's there's females here as well but like i think putting the long walk in such a fake made up situation yeah allows you to focus on those details but here it has so much more impact because we're in a realistic setting we're in the classroom that you and I talked about, and it just it hits a little bit different than the long walk does.
0: In in comparing this to the long walk, rage and the long walk both seem to circle around the idea of death. But whereas the long walk focused on death itself, hmm. rage seems to focus on the death of childhood. It's something that, you know, I was kind of getting at with the, the idea that growing up is scary. Again, we're still dealing with the idea that every child, they live long enough, will eventually become an adult, at least in age, right? And these are young adults slash old children, right? They're on that that transition period where, depending on depending on their personality and life circumstance and other things, some of them are closer to adult than than child, but they're still they're on the cusp, and maybe that's the scariest point. When you know you're firmly in one camp or the other, you can feel maybe a bit more comfortable in there, but they're in their chrysalis, right? They're defenseless. They need to emerge as the adult butterfly, and they're all struggling with it in their own ways. Charlie's struggle with it has manifested in this homicidal rage where he's killed people and hurt others, and now he's doing the things that we see in the story. But they're all suffering. They're all suffering with that transition, the death of their childhood.
1: Yeah. I think Charlie's also confused because it seems like a key moment in his childhood is when he's on that camping trip with his dad and his dad's friends, Mm -hmm. and they're very manly and brutal, and they're killing animals, and they're joking about sex and other things. And then he sees one of his father's friends in the principal's office mm-hmm. and he's just a mild manner salesman who's selling textbooks to the school. And I think he's having a hard time conjuring up those two things. Like those are two things that mean to, it means to be adult. And I don't fit into either one of those. I don't think I'm the brutal sex crazed camping dude. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think I'm the mild manner salesman. I'm something different, but I don't know how to express that. And I still want to be a kid too, and I can't. So I I think you did nail that. So, Jade, this was written when King was still in high school, which means it precedes any thought of the Dark Tower. I don't think he started that until he was 19. So, there can't be any Dark Tower Thinnies, can
0: there? (laughs) Ah, I disagree. As a matter of fact, I found a couple of thinnies. Educate me, dear sir. One of the thinnies I found was that Charlie tells us about how he got the pistol and ammo that he used for his rampage, and he got them from his father's desk, just like Jake Chambers did in the Wastelands. Oh. Eh, you know, it's it's a little uh, thin, but you know, where else is is he gonna steal his dad's Gun from. I I guess it could be the closet or some other piece of furniture or whatever, the safe. Maybe he's got a gun safe. Who knows? But the fact that it was in his desk amongst his dad's other things was very familiar. All right. You're convincing me. Is there more? There is. Charlie narrates at one point that we live in the best of all worlds, which reminded me a lot of there are other worlds than these. Oh. And then continues, turn on Starsky and Hutch and listen to that soft, harmonious note that is the universe turning smoothly on its celestial gyros. And then that really made me think of how the Dark Tower is the axis of all existence. There you go.
1: I just love that Starsky and Hutch is involved in some way. I mean,
0: the Dark Tower wouldn't exist without Starsky and Hutch.
1: And one of them is David Soule, right?
0: Who is also in Salem's Lot? Yeah. To bring this full circle. It's thinnies upon thinnies. It's turtles all the way down, Sean. Yes. (laughs) So
1: I will say that I have one that's really thin, sort of a transitive property, but there's a lot of talk by Charlie of uh, the roulette wheel spinning Mm. around and what it's going to fall on. And I read the dead zone over our Christmas break and the dead zone has a wheel of fortune that is involved. And both of those things are wheels of chance, very similar to Ka, which is also a wheel. Mm. Or it's just a metaphor that King likes to use over and over again.
0: I'll allow it. I actually have one more. We learn that Charlie's teacher, Mrs. Underwood, has a couple of nicknames from the students. One of those is book bags, because of the bags she carries around. But those bags inspired a second nickname, 2 gun Sue. And if you're going to talk about two guns and somebody named Sue kind of hard to not think of Susanna, the gunslinger, huh? Uh, yeah, huh? Uh, okay, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's a reluctant acceptance of that thinny there. Yeah, but what? whatever.
1: Sure. Lots of Dark Tower thinnies then. I feel like we're on much firmer ground with our yucking it ups, Jay. Oh, yeah. One of Charlie's friends actually picks up a mouse and eats it. On purpose? On purpose, yes. And we get this great description. Herc threw up the mouse, the hamburger he had eaten for lunch, and some pasty glop that looked like tomato soup. He was just starting to ask his mother what was going on when she threw up and there in all that puke, that dead mouse didn't look bad at all. It sure looked better than the rest of the stuff. The moral seemed to be that puking up your past when the present is even worse makes some of the vomitus look nearly tasty. Yeah, I don't like any of that.
0: It's all yucky. Hmm. Yeah, from beginning to end, that, that whole thing is, is, is worse and worse. And it's pretty bleak too when he's talking about how he equates everything in his life to vomit, yes, and he's just talking about degrees of bad versus worse vomit. I mean,, ugh. not great, so the yucking it up that I found was that um one of the students in the class, Sylvia Reagan, had gently rotting teeth, and that just got worse the more I thought about it because for some reason, that gently made me think. Of that her teeth were like soft, spongy even, and that really got me.
1: Yeah, so this is a case when Stephen King didn't take his own advice about using adverbs and yet used an adverb here that made his description even better or, or worse in this case, but yes.
0: Well, this is a good use of an adverb in King's book, as opposed to her teeth rotted gently. Like that would have, that's a no-no in his book.
1: I'm happy to tell you, Jay, that we got a really great five-star review on iTunes recently. Fantastic. Do you want to read it for us? Yes. This is titled Resumption by M. Bounce. And M. Bounce says, the best King podcasters I've been lucky to find. I first read The Gunslinger back in 1984 or 85 when I picked it up on a grocery store book rack, thinking it was another Salem's Lot, Shining, or Dead Zone. What I found blew my mind, and I've been a tower junkie ever since. I've reread these books many times over the years, and now feel that you've added another level to my tower experience. Thank you, Sai, and long days and pleasant nights
0: to you both. Wow. Well, M Bounce, that is some very kind praise. Sean, I guess we've added a whole level to the tower. Woohoo. That is, I mean, you can't do any better than that. I don't think you can. Mission
1: accomplished. We also. Want to thank our patrons for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes.
0: Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. I want to send a big thank you to our newest patron, Michelle D., who joined at the gunslinger level. Excellent. Thanks for joining, Michelle. I think it's about time we get to some fun stuff. Indeed. Start us off, Jay. All right. I have been finding that more and more often I, I think about how King comes up with the names of his characters, mm. just as like a little game I play now. And towards the beginning of the story, we learn that the math teacher's last name is Underwood, and that the typewriters in the typing room in the school are Underwoods. I gave myself three guesses as to the brand of typewriter King was using to write this story. Yep, I'm guessing it's an Underwood. I'm guessing it's an Underwood. I mean, he's literally just looks down at the logo above his fingertips. What should I call this teacher? (laughs) Underwood. Got it.
1: Well, it's like he came up with the name uh, Richard Bachman too, right? Like, what's around the room? Uh, That book and that song. Sure, go for it. Yep. And along those lines, one of the things that I wanted to point out as fun stuff is that Charlie's dad likes the author Richard Stark, who writes very noirish, dark stories, and he is told by his wife, Charlie's mother, that Richard Stark is a pseudonym for Donald Westlake, and Donald Westlake, on the other hand, writes still crime stories, but they're very much of the funny tongue-in-cheek version, and those two authors are one and the same, and when Charlie's dad picks up Donald Westlake, he gets really pissed off because they are not what he's expecting at all, and entirely different. And I just thought all of that was ironic considering that this book is a Richard Bachman book in which Richard mm-hmm. Bachman is much more along the lines of the Richard Stark, although King is not as humorous as Donald Westlake. They're just shades of darkness, I think.
0: Right. And then when King wrote The Dark Half as a, an expression of of uh, frustration about his pseudonym uh, being discovered, he named that guy Stark. Yeah. So. These things just keep going around in those car wheels, right? Yep, exactly. So I've talked about how much I like the writing in this story, and so I've got a couple of good lines here. They were shark words at deep fathoms. Jaws words come to gobble me. Words with teeth and eyes. Just really like the line. Yeah. I like how he uses jaws
1: to gobble and this is prior to the movie Jaws. I'm not sure if it's prior to Benchley's book or not, but... Uh, it's definitely before the movie, but... The movie, but-, but I don't know if it's before the book. But anyhow, it's still a good, a good description. I love it.
0: So the other great line I wanted to call out was, There isn't any division of time to express the marrow of our lives. The time between the explosion of lead from the muzzle and the meat impact. There's only barren instant replay. That shows nothing new. Mm. I just gave myself a chill just saying that. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it gets to the
1: the use of instant replay there automatically makes you think of TV. Mm -hmm. And it gets to that line that I mentioned earlier about how there is violence, both real and make-believe that Americans are, are subject to. And this is an expression of that, right? There's the real explosion of lead from the muzzle, but then the puts that instant
0: replay on top of it to give that that veneer of artificiality. It almost gives Charlie an excuse to not think that these things that are happening that he's done are real or important because from the moment that he pulls the trigger to the to the time Mrs. Underwood falls dead is so brief that he his brain doesn't even have a chance to to comprehend it. All he can do is rewinded in his mind that instant replay, but by then, he's just rewinding something that that isn't new anymore. Yeah, it's already happened. It's point. already happened. It's it's too late. It's in the past. It's whatever. And so, therefore, it's inconsequential. Like, yeah. it's a crazy way to to think about it. But I think it's just it's also an elegant way of stating it, which is what really caught my attention. You could see. King's
1: influences play out in another line. As Warner Brothers, John D. McDonald, and Long Island Dragway know so well, there's a Mr. Hyde for every happy Jekyll face. Mm. We've talked many times before about uh, King's love of John D. McDonald. And I,
0: yep, it's, it's even here in these early, early books. For sure. And uh, speaking of being influenced by other authors, I wonder if uh, King was influenced a little bit by. Of Scott Fitzgerald, when Charlie spends a good chunk of time in the beginning of the story, and he even refers back to his obsession with the lawn. Mm. And he loves how the lawn by the high school comes right up to the building and says, Howdy. It does not fuck around. And, it, you know, there, there's no flower patch, there's no gravel strip or anything. It's just grass right up to the side of the building. Yep. King did a great job with painting that picture for me. And, and it reminded me a lot of one of my favorite parts of The Great Gatsby, which is early in that novel when we get a description of the Buchanan's house. And the line in Gatsby is, the lawn started at the beach and ran towards the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walls and burning gardens. Finally, when it reached the house drifting up the side in bright vines as though from the momentum of its run. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that King is as good a writer as Fitzgerald because <laughs> <laughs> he's not. But this line has stuck in my head. Like, I, I've read Gatsby like twice in my life. And this is one of my favorite lines because I can feel the motion. I, it's almost like I am riding a wave of lawn and mm. plants and trees that truly are crashing on the shore and flowing up. To, and then over, overflowing this house. And it really feels like it's all in motion because of the words that Fitzgerald uses. And, um, but King was really was really reminiscent of that for me here, And Charlie's obsession of the, the lawn that comes up to the wall and says, howdy. So, and does not fuck around. It does not fuck around.
1: Well, that's as good a place as any to end this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we finish Rage, chapters 21 to 35. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.
0: In this episode, we'll cover the Bachman book, Rage. 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 Uh, Just giving, giving us options. Rage. Nicholas Rage. We'll cover the Bachman book, Rage.